0: Production support for Earth Eats comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young, reporting from our McDowell Gardens location.
1: They don't have gas in their vehicles, they don't have groceries, and they don't have the ability really to go get
0: groceries. On this week's show, Harvest Public Media has a story on the challenges of delivering school meals in rural communities. We share some thoughts and tips on home gardening in the COVID 19 era, and we have a Depression-era dessert recipe that might be fitting for these times as well. That's all just ahead on Earth Eats, so stay with us. We'll start with food news with Renee Reed.
2: Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Supermarket giants like Kroger, Safeway, and Walmart have started to ramp up their social distancing efforts to keep customers from passing COVID-19 from person-to-person inside stores. Many have imposed more restrictions on store capacity, such as Kroger's pledge on Monday to limit occupancy to 50% of each building's capacity nationwide. Many stores are also turning aisles into one-way paths to keep people from shuffling past each other in close quarters. In a release, Kroger said it would use scanning technology to track the capacity. Walmart has launched one-way movement through some of its stores with direction markers outlined on the floor. Some areas have been ahead of the trend. Colorado Governor Jared Polis wrote a letter on March 24th to King Supers and Safeway chains urging stronger social distancing measures. Those stores implemented barriers for cashiers and six-foot markers at checkout lines the next day. Keeping social distance at grocery stores has proved to be a major challenge amid stay-in-place orders and restrictions on non-essential outings. With restaurants and other stores shuttered, grocery shopping has emerged as a hotspot for risk of exposure to the virus. In New York City, the use of capacity restrictions and traffic routing measures has been inconsistent. Many smaller stores with narrow aisles have posted personnel at doors and marked lines in chalk to keep entry queues spaced out but many larger stores have not put such measures in place. Some stores have been using shield guards in front of cashiers for weeks and have regular announcements over loudspeaker to remind customers to maintain distance. The pork industry estimates an African swine fever outbreak in the United States could lead to $50 billion in lost revenue. That figure is the finding of a new study from Iowa State University and an agriculture biosecurity company. Study author DeMart Hayes, an Iowa State University economist, says tracking the virus spread would look very much like understanding how COVID-19 has infected people.
3: And the circumstances are almost identical. We have pigs out there that may be infecting other pigs, but we don't know it. Uh, But once the infection becomes clear, we would like to be able to trace that pig's movement to find all the other pigs they were in
2: contact with. Hayes advocates spending as much money as it takes to create electronic movement records for all pigs, trucks, and people in the pork industry. He says reducing imports of products that could harbor the virus are also necessary because keeping it out is the best way to prevent the losses. Thanks to Amy Mayer and Chad Bouchard for those reports. For Earth Eat's News, I'm Renee Reed. Thank you, Renee. Stay safe. You too, Kate.
0: Last week, we had a story about our local school district getting meals to the families who rely on them during the COVID-19 restrictions. Rural communities face additional challenges now that schools are closed. Katie Pikus, reporting for Harvest Public Media, tags along on a school meal delivery in rural southwest Iowa.
3: Where's everybody at?
1: Hey! That's Mike Wells. He's the superintendent for the Essex and Hamburg school districts in southwest Iowa. He's video chatting with me as he delivers lunch and breakfast to Nicole Hines' home in Hamburg. Heinz and three of her kids are all outside on this warm and windy day.
2: So how's the internet working? Oh,
1: good. Good. Wells recently gave Heinz and her family a Wi-Fi hotspot so they can have internet access and do online learning with their teachers. Today, he's brought seven meal bags for the seven children in Heinz's house.
2: I have three of my own. The other four are my nieces and my nephew.
1: Heinz and her fiancé have been caring for all four of her sister's kids since last year. With all of the kids out of school, school districts like this are giving kids two meals a day, five days a week. Heinz says the meals save her from spending money on extra lunch, meat, and bread for the kids.
2: They're 9, 6, 5, 4, 12, 12, and 13, so they're eating constantly. <laughs> I think every five minutes I hear, I'm hungry come out of someone's mouth, if not everybody's.
1: And getting food in rural areas isn't always easy. A couple weeks ago, Laura Dummler's family ran out of cereal. So she sent her husband from their home in Essex to the closest grocery store about seven miles away. And the aisle was desolate. Were, all the shelves were like vacant. There was nothing there. And it finally clicked in my mind, like, oh my God, what are we going to do? She and her husband don't have enough money to stock up on tons of food, and they only have one car, making frequent trips to the store hard. The food pantry they go to has closed amid the COVID-19 pandemic, but the school meals have been one sure thing. To have something that we can count on, knowing that the kids are going to have a lunch and a breakfast, you know, every day through the week, is one thing that puts our mind at ease. School districts in large urban areas have meal pickup sites at schools and near some apartment complexes, but it's up to staff at the Essex and Hamburg school districts to hand deliver meals to kids' homes. So that means sometimes Dumbler's kids get to see a familiar face like their teachers or principal. Usually they don't even make it to the house. My kids meet them out at the street and I have to remind them, you know, that we have to be social distancing ourselves and, you know, air high fives and things of that nature. Superintendent Mike Wells says as good as it is to see the kids, it's more important to the many families living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have gas in their vehicles, they don't have groceries, and they don't have the ability really to go get groceries. So he wanted his staff to deliver the meals so they could check in on families and see what else they might need. Back at her home in Hamburg, Nicole Hines says the meal deliveries and a quick visit really brighten the day.
2: It's a big joy. He's helped out tremendously.
1: Southwest Iowa hasn't been a hotbed for COVID-19, but if that changes, Wells says the in-person visits may have to end. And We've talked about that, that we'd go more to a knock on the door and not greet. And we would put out a notice to our parents. It's nothing personal. A move to protect families from community spread of COVID-19. But his school districts won't stop getting kids the food they need. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Katie Pikas.
0: Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.Studio. Insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the Expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com and Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at BloomingFoods.coop. In the past few weeks I've heard a lot of talk about growing food. It's showing up in the media I consume. Tejal Rao wrote about it last week for The New York Times and Christine Smith of Seedleaf has a great piece in the Lexington Herald Leader. I'm hearing about folks planting gardens, building raised beds in backyards, getting chickens, starting seeds in a greenhouse. And granted this isn't that unusual in the community I move through especially in early spring. That's when gardening gets started. And I host a food show, I've been growing food in my yard for years, and so have many of my friends and neighbors. But I'm hearing a new sense of urgency in this garden talk since the COVID-19 crisis began. People saying things like, now more than ever, we need to be growing our own food. And a lot of people are wanting to get more self-sufficient with food. One of my neighbors let me know that she and a few friends were getting seedlings started in a greenhouse. They'd have extra to share if I knew anyone who would want to grow some food, especially people who maybe haven't grown food before. It's got me thinking, wondering. On the one hand, of course, I love it. More people growing more food in their home gardens, that's a win. But also, it's complicated. First of all, I'm questioning where this drive to grow food is coming from. Is it a victory garden type response? Citizens, we each need to do our part. Or is it a knee-jerk response to crisis from a particular demographic to taking control of our food system? I mean, I get that. We have an Earth Eats promotion with Suzanne Babs stating, Being able to grow your own food is freedom. Growing food means different things to different people. But practically speaking, I don't see that our food supply is being disrupted all that much right now. Yes, people have made runs on grocery stores. There's some hoarding going on. And the people who can might be buying more food at one time to limit trips to the store. Many who don't normally cook at home are stocking their pantries. So yes, at first, some shelves were thinned out or empty. But they're generally getting restocked. Growers are still producing food. Truck drivers are still delivering. Grocery store employees are still stocking the shelves. Even locally, our small-scale farmers and producers are finding ways to get food to their customers. As far as I can tell, our access to food hasn't changed all that much. If you have money, food is still pretty easy to come by. And if you don't, it's still a struggle. But maybe what has changed is our anxiety about taking care of ourselves. And it might be expressing itself in this drive to plant a home garden. I worked for years at a food pantry with a strong community gardening program. They focus on teaching home gardening skills and on growing food to share with those using the food pantry. Sadly, in this crisis, they've had to put most of their gardening efforts on hold this season, while they focus on getting groceries to the folks lined up in their parking lot. But one of the things I learned quickly in that job is how unrealistic it was to think we'd grow enough food to consistently supply a food pantry. Any farmer can tell you growing food is hard. There are so many variables, and the learning curve can be steep. When to plant what, how much to plant, how close together, how to tend the plants, how to protect them from extreme temperatures, from pests and disease, building healthy soil It's unlikely that a beginning gardener will be anywhere close to food self-sufficient, even vegetable self-sufficient from a home garden. At best, it will be a delightful supplement for a few weeks of the year. But let me be clear, I don't mean to be discouraging. Quite the opposite. I want people to grow food, anyone who wants to, that is. I'm suggesting a shift in focus or intention I think there are very good reasons to start a garden right now. But not because of some prepper urge to supply your household or your neighborhood with the food you need to survive. The reason to grow food right now is to get your hands in soil. To move around outside with a purpose. To feel the temperature of the air on your skin and wonder how it might affect your fragile tomato seedlings. Gardening gives us so much more than food. It connects us to something greater than ourselves. It can help take our minds off our worries. It drops us fully into the present moment, relieves stress and brings pleasure. It brings joy. Observing and participating in a growth cycle can be healing and centering. So go. Go grow. But not for the future. Grow for now. Producer Josephine McRobbie had gardening on her mind when she spoke with Dr. Lucy Bradley, horticulture professor and extension specialist at North Carolina State University. Dr. Bradley has some truly practical tips for getting started.
3: Historic varieties of long scarlet radish. Date of test, January 2012. I'm in my shed in North Carolina, looking through some very old seed packets. I packed them six years ago when I moved from Indiana, and I'm just now finding them while working to start a garden without ordering any new supplies. Parsley, packed for 2011, sell by 11-11.
4: Well, I would start with your, well, I wouldn't start with your seeds, but since you already brought it up, let's talk about your seeds first.
3: Dr. Lucy Bradley is an urban horticulture professor and extension specialist at North Carolina State University. I called Dr. Bradley to get some tips for people who are interested in growing food gardens while under shelter-in-place orders.
4: Many seeds stay viable for years after their expiration date. So if you have kept them in the dark, if you've kept them dry, if you've kept them from being in any extremes of temperature, they may well still be viable. So you can try a couple of them, put a wet piece of paper towel into a Ziploc bag and put three to five seeds in that bag and see if they germinate or not. That's a great way to test what you've got to decide whether it is you know, worth your time to go ahead and try and plant them out.
3: Dr. Bradley is working from home this month. She's been tasked with managing new procedures for essential field labs, greenhouses, and gardens.
4: We are in um, shelter in place. Uh, it's only the projects that are considered mandatory, You know, where we have genetic material that we need to to protect for breeding or other projects that have have really high value that we have to figure out how to keep them going. A lot of the stuff that we've done, probably 95% of the research has just been put on hold.
3: As an extension specialist, Dr. Bradley fields questions from budding gardeners around the state. She's seen an increase in inquiries in recent weeks. She thinks that beyond the practicalities, home gardening can help to manage anxieties in a difficult time.
4: It's a whole different feeling and space to be in when you know, you have the skill and the resources to, to take care of yourself in some ways.
3: Her own backyard, filled with fruit trees and veggie beds, is serving her and her neighbors well right now.
4: We have plenty to share, which is a wonderful feeling in a time where, where things seem scarce. Dr. Bradley says that in her neighborhood, households are coordinating street-side seed exchanges. People are saying, hey, I've got some extra cucumber seeds. I'm going to put them in separate packages, and I'll set them out, spaced out. Help yourself as you go by if you want one.
3: She notes that it's important to sanitize seed packets and not to touch any but the ones you take. I asked Dr. Bradley how to proceed if you have limited green space at home. She says that for a novice gardener, this can actually be a positive.
4: Excellent. That is the way to go. And it's a whole lot better, I think, to have a well-managed four foot squared area than having a 10 by 10 foot square area that you can't keep up with and the weeds are out competing your vegetables and it's demoralizing every time you go out it's it's hard to, to have it be a joyful thing when it's when it's such a heavy load so start smile, you can expand over time as, as you improve the soil and you manage the the, the weeds and, and you get into the rhythm of the garden
3: she encourages gardeners to look at non-traditional yard space for planting
4: you, know, you can nestle them in around your yard too you know if you don't have a vegetable garden that doesn't mean you can't grow vegetables you can have a you know an ornamental landscape and still Plop in a, you know, a couple of lettuce here, a couple of, of, of kale there. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You, you, you can produce a lot of food in little niches.
3: Apartments can be more challenging, but most vegetables and herbs can grow in a container.
4: On the, the balcony, you have enough room to have some fairly large pots. The larger the pot you you have, the, the easier it is for you. The more leeway you have in terms of watering. If you have a large pot and you water it really well, you can go a couple of days without, without watering it. If you have a really small pot, you may have to water it every day.
3: For indoor spaces with sparse light, she recommends leafy greens or culinary herbs.
4: They do better because we don't We don't have to go through the whole life cycle, right? We're going to eat the leaves. We don't have to wait for the leaves to grow and then for it to produce a shoot and a flower and for that flower to produce a fruit and that fruit to mature.
3: It's best to plant in a sunny spot. In flat or gently sloped areas... And in spots that are accessible to both the water source and your own daily routine.
4: Uh, and I have you know walkways from the street to, to my house. I have two different walkways that, that come in, and so I just kind of line those walkways with easy edibles that I can harvest on the way in from the office when I used to work at an office <laughs> before I moved home. You know, so I have lettuce and basil and and all different you know kinds of. Of herbs along there, so it's really easy to manage. So there, and I would go buy it every single day. It's not back in the back forty where I where I never go back there.
3: As director of NC State's Urban Horticulture Program, Dr. Bradley helps to support community gardening, school gardens, and even therapeutic gardening programs.
4: And they do everything from working with people with substance abuse issues to children with developmental disabilities to people who've had brain injuries. There's all sorts of different ways that, that horticulture is used as a therapeutic tool.
3: Our talk quickly moves from practical tips to a pep talk.
4: Gardening is therapeutic in so many ways. You know, It's good physically you're out there in the sunshine, lifting and stretching and carrying. It's great emotionally just being able to, to, to play and be creative in your, in your own way and having space. To, to just relax and enjoy the peace of, of, of nature is really important.
3: She sends me back to my vintage seed packs with a final nudge of encouragement.
4: It's totally doable. It's easier every year. The hardest, the, the first year is the hardest year, for sure. So, so don't um, despair you know, if you're trying to do it right now in less than optimal circumstances. You know, just starting is great. Because you, every, every time you work with the soil, you're improving it. So you're adding compost when you can. You're putting mulch on top to you know, suppress the weeds. And that'll break down and improve the soil. Every year, it gets better and easier. So uh, this is a good time to start.
0: That was producer Josephine McRobbie speaking with Dr. Lucy Bradley, horticulture professor and extension specialist at North Carolina State University. Our recipe today is one we've shared before. It's a chocolate cake from Susan Mintert of the Indiana Home Cooks podcast. She calls it a crazy cake, but it also goes by the name depression cake. The recipe came about during the Depression, when rich ingredients like eggs and butter might have been difficult to come by. With many of us cooking from diminished pantries and limiting trips to the store and trying to make do with what we have on hand it seemed like an appropriate choice this week. Here's Susan in her kitchen with her mother and her daughter.
5: This cake consists of flour, cocoa powder, sugar, salt, and soda for your dry ingredients. And then you're going to add some vanilla, some vinegar, and some salad oil, and then two cups of water. So those are the ingredients, and we're just going to put this together you mix it all up in your baking pan. So I have just a 9 by 13 baking pan here and we're going to put all the ingredients in the pan and we are going to mix it up and then bake it so it's just as easy as that. So we've combined all the dry ingredients into our baking pan and we're going to just thoroughly mix those together. I like to use a a flat wire whisk. It works really well for this. You can also use a fork. This is the only part of this cake that even takes very long. (laughs) So, now this is kind of the fun part. When you get this mixed together, make three wells in the uh, dry ingredients here. Into the first well we're going to put two teaspoons of vanilla into the second well two teaspoons of vinegar Hmm. and into the third well we're pouring in a scant two-thirds cup of oil and I always use canola oil on the top of this we're going to pour over two cups of cold water so we're just going to kind of pour this over the top and you want to be careful here so you don't splatter Then we're going to take that whisk again and just whisk it together. All right, so we've just about got this, and, you know, it's not going to be perfect, like, without lumps, but you do want to get all the dry ingredients well incorporated and get that oil mixed in. Our oven is preheated to 375.
3: Okay. So... The leavening agent of this cake is baking soda, soda. right? Mm-hmm. So that's reacting with vinegar, right? Probably.
5: Yes. The baking soda with the acid mm-hmm. would create the the bubbles in yeah. there for there the leavening. There are
3: some little tiny bubbles in there.
5: Already, yeah, already some bubbles. That's right. So we've got it ready. We're going into the oven. And it only takes 30 minutes to bake. We'll have dessert in no time. The other thing about this cake, which we didn't really comment on but we mixed all the ingredients in the baking pan and the baking pan was not greased or floured ahead of time nothing at all it was ungreased it works (laughs) it will come out of the pan when it's done so we'll see how it comes out
0: the cake bakes for about 30 minutes in a 375 degree oven but don't worry about writing it all down this recipe can be found on our website eartheats.org
5: So uh, our cake has been out of the oven now for a couple hours. We have it served with strawberries with a little sugar and a dollop of creme fraiche on the side. Cake has a nice texture. It's nice and moist. And the creme fraiche gives you a a little of that creamy element, but it's not too sweet. Yeah, all right, I think
0: it's a keeper. That was Susan Mentored of the Indiana Home Cooks podcast. Susan's depression cake recipe and links to her podcast can be found on our website, eartheats.org. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Stay nourished,
2: stay safe. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. EarthEats is produced and edited by Kate Young and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Lucy Bradley
0: and Susan Mintert. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue. Enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillReshInsurance